1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, EllisMartinReport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin.
2: Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol S. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. That's focused on new discoveries, value added acquisitions and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties of prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Eric, welcome back to the program. Great, thanks for having me back, Ellis. You've recently been to the Las Chispas Mine in Sonora State, Mexico, and what can you
3: tell us? We just returned boots on the ground, did full review of the eight drill holes that we've drilled so far to date. That's about 17 1,800 meters of drilling. No assays yet. I don't have x-ray vision, so I can't tell you, but we did do a news release and we did say in the news release that we hit stock work and veining. Those are always important things to know. <laughs> so there is some continuity to the system. A lot of the emphasis now moving forward is, and part of my review just back from Las Chispas, is to look at the continuity of the veins. If you remember, there's uh, 14 historic veins that were mapped and about three that were mined on. So we're focusing right now on the areas that were previously mined. The grades for those areas averaged, to 1.7 kilos per ton silver and about 15 grams per ton gold. So those are exciting numbers. I could only uh, aspire to get such numbers uh, moving forward here, but even half of that makes a lot of sense from an economic standpoint. This is more of a developing story now than an exploration greenfield story. I've got a question which you may or may not
2: choose to answer, and it's pure speculation on my part and probably yours. Any chance that the Las Chispas mine could be larger than the uh, Santa Elena mine that you sold off to uh, First Majestic?
3: My My target here, Ellis, is the original discovery that we made at Santa Elena, which is about 25 kilometers south of Las Chispas, was about 25 million ounces silver equivalent. So that's my target in my head right now. And then once you make that initial discovery, then it just becomes a double or a triple from there. And that's what Santa Elena did. That would be great if we could tell the story as it develops, just like Santa Elena. And that's the feeling I get. This feels like Santa Elena. Santa Elena is wider, lower grade. The Las Chispas is narrower vein, higher grade. But I'm getting that feeling right now, that gut feeling. Of course. And and you and the management team was intimately involved with Santa Elena, of course. Yeah. We started the original Silvercrest mines. I'll call it the old Silvercrest. Now we're the new Silvercrest or Silvercrest metals. We started that in 2003. We signed a deal on Santa Elena in November of 2005. Did the discovery nine months later. That's the feeling I'm getting right now at Las Chispas. Nine months later. We're coming on to the potential discovery at Las Chispas. And then within uh, three years, we financed and started construction. So quite aggressive. I love Mexico because of this, because I can permit these things pretty quick and bring value to the shareholders very rapidly. Speaking of rapid
2: value to the shareholders, I'd be remiss if I didn't note the fact that you're the top company on the TSX right now, to my knowledge, with regard to mining, that has seen share growth 712% actually since we began in February
3: to tell your story. Yeah, that's correct. And I'd like to say that was all to our doing, but that's mostly the market, Ellis. I think you're seeing a change in the market. Hopefully this is the start of the next bull cycle. I'm a cycle guy and these things usually happen every five to seven years. And we're coming on to that five to six year point right now. So look for the bull market. My timing on this was 2017. Maybe these are baby steps that we're starting right now and we'll see where it goes from here. Well, even then we track other silver companies and yours has been And I imagine it's because everybody's aware of the good work you've done in the past and the good work that you're doing now. Yeah, you live by your reputation in your last deal. We've made quite a bit of money for the old Silvercrest party that was with us. If you stayed along with the merger or acquisition that occurred with First Majestic, that price when we did that deal in October 1st was about a $150 million deal. And what we did was we invested 23% into First Majestic. If you stayed With that till today, you had already gotten a fourfold on that. So it's about a half a billion dollar deal today. I imagine this particular
2: iteration of
3: Silvercrest Metals might be, in fact, bigger
2: than the previous iteration, only because this might be the largest bull market we've ever seen.
3: Well, let's see where we go from here, Ellis. I like to make money and make money for my shareholders, whether it's a bad market or a good market. I think we've been effective in doing that for the last 10 years under the flagship of the old Silvercrest, Silvercrest Mines, and we just want to do it again in Silvercrest Metals. Eric, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining me here in Los Angeles today. Thanks for being on the program. Great. Thanks for having me again, Ellis. Look forward to getting together with you again in the future.
2: been speaking with Eric Feer, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mines, Yanis Setos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS.v. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company about to produce gold in English speaking Guyana. Bordering the Caribbean in South America. Giannis, welcome back to the program. You've had a good first quarter in Guyana with Gold Source. Tell us about it.
4: Yeah, that was obviously a milestone quarter for Gold Source Mines, and the huge milestone was that we completed construction on time and definitely under budget, as we have discussed in the past. Subsequent to that, we initiated commissioning. We had the first gold pour, we had the first gold sale, and that was fabulous. It was in a very important and probably the most historic quarter for the company to date
2: so actually we can officially call you a gold producer now can we not
4: look the accountants want to call that when we enter what we call the commercial production phase we are still in the commissioning phase in essence we are a gold producer we expect as we discussed in the past we remain with our prediction to enter into the commercial production within the second quarter of the year so before the end of the June we will have to do this announcement.
2: Now just to recap why is Guyana such a great place for a mining company? Guyana
4: is a great place because it's the only English-speaking country in South America, which really present to us a lot of freedom in many fronts. That's the accounting front or with the British system and British law, British standards in terms of uh, IFRS reporting and so on. So, which makes me as a Canadian company very easy to consolidate our books of the subsidiary companies in Guyana with the Canadian standards. On top of that, more than 25% of the country's GDP comes from resources industry, namely bauxite, gold sales, and very recently now with a major discovery by Exxon, on the oil front, so Guyana has very robust mining law that hasn't been changed since 1989, which presents stability for any foreign investor. At the same time, it's a secular democracy and the people do not object mining, so who got support from the social front on the local side but also from the government front in Georgetown.
2: So the jurisdiction is just as good as it would be in, let's say, Canada or the state of Nevada, for instance.
4: To some extent, maybe even better than some American states. Just given the time needed in terms of permitting, Guyana you can do things a little bit faster. Now, of course, when it comes to political risk and other stuff, I wouldn't put in the same category but definitely it's one of the best and less risky countries in South America and to some extent to the world.
2: What can we look forward to for the rest of the year with regard to gold source?
4: This year is obviously very very important carrying on on the success of the first quarter but the next I would say three big milestones for the for us in the year is firstly the announcement of the commercial production within the second quarter of this year then we want to establish a second shift because at the moment we work with one 10 hour shift so when we put the second shift you understand the, the throughput capacity will improve and that will increase amount of ounces subsequently so that's a huge thing we we'll hope to to happen sometime before the end of the summer and then as we're working on permitting on the leach reactor we want to develop a leach plant uh, in other words complement the current structure we have on the technical front and improve gold recoveries sometime in the fall. So, consistency obviously is very important and as long as we keep putting good news over the summer, this company will get even more attention.
2: And you believe, of course, this is not an unbiased question, but you believe that your share price is potentially very undervalued as opposed to where you're gonna be headed in the future.
4: Yeah, least I guess any president you ask will tell you the same thing. But what I want to say here is we definitely have a An operation with zero accident environment, zero lost hours. We operate safely. We have the license to operate, putting these words in brackets, from all stakeholders, from the social community who, who really likes to work for us and most of the people operating in Guyana for Gorsos mines are Guyanese to the extent of the government and the Ministry of Natural Resources. Then obviously we've got very loyal shareholders who believe in us and recently we received even money from exercise, voluntary exercise of warrants by loyal shareholders to beef up our treasury. So the quality of the asset is, as we have discussed in the past, really good. It's a pleasure for us to production face in a year where we see gold price being robust and therefore the future is really good. So I be, do believe that all that will translate at some point to better valuation of the company. But we stick to the plan, and it's a bootstrap operation. And as long as we keep operating safely and re- delivering more and more ounces during the year, we will see some reward. Janos
2: Sitos, President of Gold Source Mines. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this update. Thank
4: you very much and have a lovely day to all your listeners. Thanks. I've been
2: speaking with Yanis Sittos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website ellismartinreport.com or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio.
1: Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website ellismartinreport.com
2: Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brand Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the US and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Rheolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you very much, Alice. You have some updated results with regard to your recent pancreatic cancer study. This, of course, is a, typically a very fatal cancer. Let's talk about that again today.
5: Well, pancreatic cancer is, I mean, it's focus of a lot of companies, and for a very good reason, and that's because it's usually not very good outcome. And then that's an understatement. I mean, the five-year survival rates on the most common form of pancreatic cancer are virtually zero. There's been a lot of focus in the industry on that particular type of pancreatic cancer, and it's actually starting to show some effects. I and mean, then we're starting to actually see increased survival rates with a number of different therapies. And there's a couple of studies about to come out Um, That other people have done that are going to start showing some really big improvements, which is encouraging for all of us, both if we're patients, very encouraging, and as people in the industry, we also find that encouraging too. Now, this last study that we announced updated material or information on was curious in the fact that it fits in very nicely with what we actually believe uh, how our agent called real license works. And what we're seeing is in this particular study, we followed the patients for a very long time period, and we're still following patients in that study. And what we saw early Early on, when you're comparing the test arm, which has real lysine added to the standard of care to the control arm, uh, which doesn't have real lysine, early on, you didn't see much difference uh, in the overall survivals. And that actually went up to one-year survivals. There was no differences. But then you started, when you got it to two and then three-year survivals, you start to see these big differences. And at two-year survivals on the control arm, which is what people normally get, there was 0% survival. On the real lysine arm, it was 18%. And so, you know, one out of six patients is alive versus zero out of six patients. And that's the ratio. There was far more patients than that in the study. And that's pretty significant. But that's what we expect to see when you start to see immune effects, where you're actually seeing your immune system start to to help out in the therapy and that's really what was significant for us out of that study was just saying hey there's another marker showing that real lysine is interacting with the immune system but it's also causing the benefit that patients are most interested in which is living longer so we are very excited about that over 10% of the patients are alive on the test arm on that study and they're between two and three years so we're hoping in a couple of quarters that we will also be able to report on much improved three-year survivals which would be really exciting and that's led to us doing a study that's ongoing right now San Antonio, where we're actively combining real lysine with one of the new immune therapies called checkpoint inhibitors to actually see if we can actually really promote that long-term survival in a much, much more aggressive way.
2: Is this a disease that's more difficult to detect early on?
5: Well, it's really frustrating diseases for exactly that reason. About half the patients in that study that was sponsored by the NCI actually were asymptomatic on entry, which is very unusual. It's very, very difficult to detect that disease before it you start seeing symptoms. And the symptoms are usually put off to having an upset tummy or just not feeling right or something like that. So patients typically don't get scanned for that. I mean, getting scanned is a pretty aggressive step so people don't get it. And usually when pancreatic cancer is diagnosed, it's too late. And you usually start to see those symptoms when it's spread beyond the pancreas. I mean, you can deal with pancreatic cancer if it's just in the pancreatic head, for example. I mean, just cut it out. With surgery, and you have actually good response rates. When it spreads, and it spreads to the liver and lymph nodes and things like that, the outcomes are almost inevitably not very good. And there's a number of diseases like that. Ovarian, which we've talked about before, is like that. You know, if you get it early, it's easy. If you get it late, it's not. Melanoma, which a lot more people are familiar with. If you get superficial melanomas very early, I mean, you just cut it out, and it's gone. It's done. You're, you're cured, literally. And if it spreads deep into the skin, then the survival rates drop to almost zero for long term. And so early detection for a number of these cancers is critical, and to me, I hate to say this as a person who develops drugs, some of the biggest advances we've seen in oncology hasn't been new therapies, It's been new diagnostics. That's also a very exciting part of our business right now.
2: What about general practitioners? I mean, how educated are they these days with regard to urging their patients to get diagnoses for ovarian cancer or pancreatic cancer? I'm not talking about gynecologists or oncologists. I'm talking about general physicians that see people on a regular basis.
5: I have to say that um, I think it's a really encouraging trend. I think on uh, your first contact person in the healthcare system, which is now these days a general practitioner usually, is getting far more sophisticated about detecting these you know, very early cancers than they used to be. And so, I mean, I have to give them a lot of credit. It's getting far better. And part of that is just access to easier administered testing. Now, if you can get a blood test or a urine test or you know something like that that can actually show you, you have early stage cancer, then you're going to pick that up in routine lab exams as long as it's incorporated in there. And again, fortunately for people in the United States, the U.S. Is that the Top of the pyramid, if you want to think of it that way, for introducing these new things into their healthcare system. Americans really are benefiting from being the leader of the world in introducing these healthcare innovations. And so the GPs are actually becoming very effective people at detecting things. You know, a few years ago, they didn't have the tools to do so.
2: Are insurance companies, do you believe, in your opinion, are they contributing to this surge in preventive maintenance?
5: Absolutely. I mean, the payers, as we call them on our side of the table, or reimbursement in, in more polite circles and which are you know are the both government and private insurers have a vested interest from a cost containment perspective of preventative health care I mean a ten dollar test that leads to a simple cure in cancer is far more cost-effective than the alternative which is to catch it late and and hundreds of thousands of dollars on surgery and possibly the same amount on on drugs still have a bad outcome you know and end up having to have expensive hospital stays and palliative care and all the rest of that and so strictly from a we want to and as little as we humanly can Preventative healthcare is exactly where they're pushing to go towards. They're actually very rapid adopters. I have to give a lot of credit to insurers these days, is that they're very much on top of adopting new technologies. The side benefit of, of helping out the patients, but are largely due to cost containment.
2: A follow-up to that would be then: Are the insurance companies, government organizations, and let's say the investment community, are they looking at your company specifically due to the uh, seemingly successful research you've been able to conduct?
5: Well, we're getting a lot of interest from all levels of all the people in that comment you just made you know the insurers are interested in what we do because it looks like real lysine well definitively that doesn't even look like it's definitive that it's a very good at tumor debulking and it's starting to look like it actually helps out with lifespan which we have to of course prove in well-designed clinical studies which is, is coming that whole perspective is tempered by the fact and in a positive way and that the, the side effect profile of the agent is superior we've treated over a thousand patients with the agent now so we have a very good idea about the safety profile and when you can tell somebody that they're going to get a, a cancer therapy where the main side effect is maybe a degree or two of fever for a few hours on day two or day three of a five day cycle and they might feel tired that's the overwhelmingly most common side effect profile that a patient will report I compare that to historic side effect profiles of chemotherapeutics that's an easy sell and the insurance people see that they see a safe agent that probably is doing something and that's attracting a lot of interest in and we're already I mean we're not approved yet and we're talking with various reimbursement groups about getting listed for reimbursement, even though we're not approved yet. They're getting it. The big pharmas and our, our colleagues and the big biotech companies are beginning to pay attention to what we're doing in a very serious way, largely because of this interaction with the immune system being defined, that we believe is potentially resulting in the overall survival increases that we think we're seeing. And that is at the leading edge of oncology today, is all is it harnessing the immune system. So now that we're into that area in a real way and running clinical studies there, that's attracting attention from the commercial side in a real way. But they're very different concerns. The reimbursement side focuses on one thing and that that our corporate colleagues and cousins are focusing on a different thing.
2: I've got to throw my investor hat on for a few minutes here. When you get approval, when that happens... How does that change the financial look of your company with regard to your market cap potentially?
5: When people have a certainty of you actually having revenue, then that shifts your valuation model from milestones and good phase two data or good phase three data or good whatever data, and people put a soft value on that, switches it over to just good old fashioned, nicely easily defined valuation. And your typical biotech company that's profitable trades after tax, not EBITDA. I mean after tax the most is about 20 and the earnings multiple and if you're getting bought out the premium on that's about 15 or 20 percent it's a pretty standard narrow band and so you know if everybody says okay real license it's gonna get approved and they believe that then they go well, gee it's gonna have a half a billion and in, in after-tax revenue, then that'll give you a 10 billion market cap. And that number is really defensible and easy to do. So once people get to the believable part about and what they think the revenue is, that's when the real payback comes for our investors. And it's pretty significant payback when you look at market cap now versus market cap then. And so as an investor, and that's how I focus on things when I look at biotech companies to invest in, which I do quite a bit of, but that's the real payoff at the end. And it's sensible and it's solid and it's reproducible, which is, as an investor, is really critical.
2: Brad, thanks again for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more good news coming down the road. Thank you very much, Al. I hope you have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to this segment again on our website or download the entire
1: Ellis Martin report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com.
2: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.V and in the U.S. as S-K-H-R-F. Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Mike, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on. I want to thank you for introducing me to a gentleman that I'd only heard about but had never met and never interviewed. The gold has to come from somewhere. He's identified lots of it in the Yukon. And of course, you're on the advisory board of a company called Stakeholder Gold, which is a sponsor of this segment. Let's talk about Sean Ryan, if you will. How did you first come into contact with him?
6: 2009, there was a big discovery in the Yukon that attracted a lot of attention. And it was the underworld discovery in the White Gold District. The White Gold District is the upper elevation area due east of what was known in the 1897 to 1902 period as the Klondike. That was the source of all the, what we call, alluvial gold that was panned out of the rivers and creeks that flowed into the Yukon River. That was the Klondike Gold Rush of 1897. Sean staked that entire region. It became known to me that he was the one prospector in the area that had all the premium ground. As we tend to do, we see someone else with a great deal of success up there as had Underworld, penny stock that was trading at a dollar seventy five on volume and raising money and doing great work. And Ryan was the vendor of the property, so I did a quick checklist, made the appropriate phone calls, and it was determined that another junior mining company had a property called Rose Butte, and that Sean Ryan had vended that property to them very early in the game. So I met Sean in 2010 in Toronto, he was giving a presentation to a room of about 300 people. I went up afterwards, and because of my experience as a hockey player and in my hockey travels, I had run into a lot of people from... Uh, northern ontario in the hockey world and if you have traveled in the 1970s and 60s and 80s like I did in the hockey world there is some towns up in northern ontario that have legendary NHL superstars that came from Frank Mahovlich was from the Schumacher group, which is, that's Northern Ontario, uh, Dave Keon from Noranda, Quebec. I mean, Ryan and I, we had people in common that I knew that knew him from my days in hockey. So there was an immediate kinship that was developed. As time went along, what I was astounded with was just how scientific everything he had done was. This gentleman was a data junkie long before it became fashionable. And he had taken the same work that the senior mining companies would hire students to go in and do geochemical sampling and paving minimum wages and never really check over their work. And results being that they really didn't have much of a database. I think Sean would be the first one to admit that what he did is he paid 1,000% attention and interest in prioritization of the geochemical sampling work, Trained the people. And and, and that's what what got my attention, because there was a quantifiable and discernible trend of success in the Yukon directly correlated to the sample results that Sean had gathered. So here we are in 2016. What has Sean got? Well, he had the original Underworld Discovery, which got taken over by Ken Ross for $148 bucks. That was Sean's. And the next one, which is actually now eclipsing that as a world-class mining operation to be is the coffee property which is kamenak gold corporation Ivor thomas running it and kamenak has been one of our greatest successes in the last year accumulating the shares all through 2015 as low as 55 cents and i think earlier today it got up to within a hair's breadth of two dollars a share and kamenak has 5.2 million ounces present 3.4 million ounces inferred 1.8 million ounces measured and indicated on a property that Sean mended to them in two thousand and I believe two thousand and eight and where only twenty percent of the property's been explored. So stakeholder is not a Sean Ryan property. The initial one we have is Ballarat, but Sean told me back then 2010. that amongst the best trench results in the entire Yukon, including Underworld and Kaminak, was found on the Ballarat project. In terms of grade, there hasn't been a lot of work done on Ballarat, but that's why we've engaged Sean and his company, Ground Truth Explorations, to go back and redo all the work on Ballarat. My money's riding on Sean. He he told everybody there'd be a discovery on the uh, Underworld property, which is called Golden Saddle. He told me back then that Kaminak, this was long before Kaminak had a resource. He said he figured there was three to five million ounces there right again. And now he's going to go and turn his energy to to Ballarat and stakeholder gold.
2: I've been speaking with Michael Ballinger, chairman of the advisory committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, EllosmartReport.com. Join me for a conversation with Ron Irwin, Hollywood publicist and author, having recently penned the book, Lose Live, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Ron and I recently completed, along with others, a 14-mile walk in celebration of his life after death. Ron, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you on. Great to be back, Al. Just a few days ago, you and I did something I didn't think we'd ever do together. I did a 14-mile walk with you from Burbank around the hill, straight into Hollywood. I'll tell you what, it was a lot of fun. It was the second hike for you. Tell me what the motivation was behind doing something like that.
7: It started a year ago because in 2012, I literally dropped dead, be it ever so briefly. But, you know, when the heart and the lungs quit, that's pretty dead. I spent 26 days in ICU. I was obese. The obesity gave me diabetes. I had a heart problem. What took me down was heart failure. And then I got done with that, went out and saw another doctor. I had cancer. And all of this, all of this was traceable to my previous lifestyle of very poor diet and relatively no exercise. And as I came out of this, I felt as if God had given me an opportunity to change my life, live better, live longer, live stronger, because part of the reason I did survive was the immense love that flowed to me from my family, and I didn't want to ever lose that. As I became to get stronger, I lost 160 pounds. As my diet changed, as my attitude towards things changed, as my exercise changed, I thought, "By gummy. We need, I need to do something to just draw attention to the fact that, believe it or not, the number one Problem in the world today is this ever-expanding, no pun intended, obesity. Because obesity isn't just a fashion statement; it leads to deadly diseases such as diabetes and heart failure. So that's what that whole walk was about. It was to showcase a that there's a problem, and b you can fix it before it kills you.
2: Now you were always a very large man. We've known each other for 20 years. Now you have slimmed down, shockingly so, and you can probably outwalk and hike me. Makes a huge difference with regard to everything else in your life too Uh, how much more fun is it for you to
7: enjoy the day than it used to be oh enormously because first of all there's a physiological element to this if if you start to feel a little burned out at work or whatever get up and walk around for five minutes what happens is the body will begin to start generating endorphins and that's a feel-good drug that's legal with no negative side effects and it's it's all self-contained.
2: Actually, it's the effect that everybody tries to obtain through illegal substances and other forms of stimulus that really don't work, like alcohol or or marijuana. Which I'm not, you know, we're not
7: poo-pooing on this program, but really, just get out there and move the molecules. Yeah, yeah, and it's an amazing thing. I don't want to get too deep in it, but like any other person, there are moments in everybody's day where things may not be as perfect as you want. I'll just go for a walk. By the time I get back. Heck, I'm feeling great. And there's just a whole uh, lot that's into that. And we're going to keep doing this walk every year. It's called the Hollywood Health Hike or the Hike to Hollywood Health, whatever you want to call it. It's the whole idea is to draw attention. We are getting increasing media attention, which is a good thing. Not because I, at my age, care much about being a celebrity. That's not the issue. Though, we had several celebrities on our hike, which was made it somewhat Fun, didn't it?
2: I met a gentleman that is associated, affiliated with you. He's a friend of yours. His name is Johnny Crawford, and by gosh, if he didn't wear cowboy boots and have a trick rope with him
7: for fourteen miles, he, he last sued me halfway through the whole walk. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> by the <laughs> way if you don't know who Johnny Crawford is you might remember the rifleman and he was the son of uh, the rifleman Chuck Connors or the late great Chuck Connors and he's gone on for a great career in both television film and music pretty good musical guy yeah he did the hike and amazingly the guy this is Hollywood I can't give his age well let's just say he's above the social security age okay
2: well it gives his age on Wikipedia so you can, he's 70
7: okay 70 years old 70 years young and he can outperform a lot of 18 year olds alright that's what I'm telling you but uh, yeah it was a lot of fun having them along it's a lot of fun having anybody we had a lot of great people but i also have a book just for those people that can't make it to hollywood for the hike shame on you the book's just called lose live you want to live lose lose live l-o-s-e live l-i-v-e that's pretty simple right you can get it at barnes and noble amazon lulu.com it's not very expensive what's your life worth it's about 160 pages of what you need to do and why you need to do it and again it's not about i need to be a size two dress for my photo shoot yeah that may be but that's not the point the point is when you overstress your heart and you gum up your veins and you mess up your interior things start falling apart very badly and it can lead to a very ugly and near-term death you don't want that there are better options and i gotta tell you Al, when i was sitting in that icu and it was grim it was literally the love that i felt in a way never before well i mean i'm a guy you know love you long time's a joke right but when i felt my sons and my daughters and my wife and my grandkids all there and i could feel their energy that's why you want to live my friend And that's why you want to live well, and you want to help them live well. You don't want to give a bad example of dad sitting around pounding down a bottle of wine and eating a bucket of cheese because who cares? It's good. No, it isn't. A glass of wine's not bad. A bottle's a little much. You know what I mean? Just things like that.
2: How many people do we know our age, 60s and, and early 70s, 50s and what have you, east of the 405 freeway that are just, they're overweight, they're perhaps obese, they would say, to you, you know what? I just can't do it. Look at me. I can't move.
7: You were one of those people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just gave up on yourself. If that's what you want, that's fine. You know. Why don't you just go over and prepay for forest lawns so your family doesn't stress out? That's just the way it is. I mean, it's just what is. And by the way, one of the good things, one of the key things in my book, live, lose, the one thing that we all do, we all do it, some more than others, obviously, is BS ourselves. We come up with excuses. I think you earlier today mentioned a guy we both know and love sir winston churchill he was my excuse for abusing myself what do you mean Winston Churchill was a portly man. He did a bottle of brandy a day and several cigars a day, and got England out of World War II intact. I used to point to him and say, "Ah, come on, he lived to 89. Look what he did." Yeah, I know. So you know, one out of seven billion people can misbehave and survive. That's not the statistical norm, my friend. That's the exception that proves the rule. And the rule is, when you abuse your body, you kill yourself. It's that simple.
2: And you can absolutely turn your life around, can't you? It's really easy and the bonus a bonus side effect is you make your your depression
7: well absolutely and by the way you want to find out how to fix it go to your bathroom look in the mirror you're going to see two people in that mirror you're going to see the person that's your problem and you're going to see the person that can solve your problem they're both there they are both there you don't need a bunch of external things around you you just simply need you to focus on what you know you need to do, because you know you need it. You just repress it, okay? it's Hey, I'll get to that. Yeah, later. I love that. Later. Tomorrow. Well, guess what? Tomorrow may not happen for you. This all-too-human tendency, and every single person does it, some of us far more than others, of course, but self-deception, the BS factor. Stop it. It'll kill you. Be real. I'll tell you what's scary. When you've been avoiding it forever, the first time you go jump on that scale, oh my God, you think it's never going to stop spinning, right? And then it settles in at, you know, I peaked out at about 312, and I went, holy crap, that is just total no good. But it took me another few years to finally get around to really fixing it you can do it it's just a question of motivation and when you find it you know that you're in a world of people you love you you got to love yourself your friends your family your wife your husband and it's all there and it's all good and you just want more of it and you want to live long you want to live strong you know it you have become quite a physical specimen yourself so you don't have to be the next young schwarzenegger you don't have to be all buffed and you know ribbed but you do need to be a proper weight and you do need to move and you do need to eat Things that tend to grow out of the ground more than things that you'll find at the bakery.
2: Vanity isn't necessarily a bad thing in the city, in Los Angeles. It can work to your favor. If Your vanity and your interest in looking good—that well, could also be a motivating factor. See, I wouldn't even call that vanity.
7: I would just call that common sense. Do you really want to look but ugly? You have an option. You were born adorable. Name one baby that a parent didn't adore, even if they were born with three eyes and you know whatever. Uh, the fact is, is babies are born adorable. We all adore them, and then we grow into things that become less and less adorable typically if you want to call that vanity i I guess how about taking care of yourself it's as simple as that you don't have to be constantly worried about being on the red carpet and that kind of hollywood crap it's just a matter of being strong and again i would recommend highly if you have any questions about how to re-energize yourself and get focused it's all there and lose live lose live Barnes & Noble, Amazon, lulu.com. Check it out. It doesn't cost much. And it's a great little tool. There are plenty of tools out there, but a lot of them, quite frankly, are just somebody that's running this program and that program. And, you know, if you pay me 300 a month, I'll come over. And, you know, do you really want to do that? Yeah, you're going to lose weight. Your wallet's going to get thinner. But you don't need to. Again, go to your bathroom, find your mirror, look in it. You're going to see two people. You're going to see the one that's causing your problems. And you're going to see the one that can solve it. They're both there. They're both there, Al. And you know that because I've seen you go through your struggles, as we all have in life, and you've always emerged upright.
2: Thank you for that. One thing I've always known is, you know what, if you just go out and take a walk, it, it can't be a huge problem solver, and that is free for the most part.
7: You know, I know we're getting close on time here, but I just want to tell you how important that is. Part of my medical treatment, you want to call it that, when I was diagnosed with some cancer was a form of chemotherapy that was literally literally just destroying me it was just too much I would sit in a dark room looking at a dark television wasn't even on and I would sit and meticulously think about all the people I was going to kill when where and how and suicide by cop that was what was going through in my mind Now I knew that was not a good thing right I would get up and practically run a mile, though I don't run, but I would walk at a very strong pace. But the time I hit a mile, everything was calm. Everything was good. Now, that's an extreme. I got off the chemo and all that crap went away. But still, walking, or if you enjoy running, my wife's a marathoner, can you believe it? I'll walk it. She can run it. But walk, run, whatever it is, swim, anything, anything that gets you moving, get the body moving. It's so good. The body was designed to move. And if you take that seriously you're gonna feel a whole lot better you're gonna
2: feel fantastic The book is called Lose, Live. It's available on Amazon.com. The author, we've been speaking with Ron Irwin. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today again on the program. Great, Al. Thank you. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes and TuneIn Radio.
1: Do you have questions that need answers about our sponsor companies? Contact them. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website at ellismartinreport.com. That's EllisMartinReport.com. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. And now, here's Bob Lang.
8: Hi, and welcome to Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. Driving a car in the 1920s was exciting, even more so if you found yourself in the American West. Imagine driving a Model T through the American West in the 20s and the challenges of finding gasoline breaking down or just finding spares. There was no interstate highway system back then, but there were people living throughout the American West for centuries before the 20s. It's just that the automobile started to shrink the terrain a bit. The Rocky Mountains were full of challenges for motoring enthusiasts in the 20s and even prior to that in the teens of the 20th century, of course. In fact, 100 years ago this year, a race to the top of Pikes Peak began. Not just a whimsical adventure, but a sanctioned race. The first class of racing in the Pikes Peak Hill Climb was the Open Wheel Division, a dangerous, hair-raising, 4,700-foot climb in machinery of the times, if you know what I mean. I'm pretty sure that the current class record holder is Robbie Unser, who did it in 10 minutes and almost 6 seconds in 1994. But the fastest person to do it in any class, I believe, is still Sebastian Loeb, who did it in about 8 minutes and 14 seconds just a few years back. The original trophy was won by Riolette's who took a whole 20 minutes and 55 seconds to get up the hill. Uh, that's back in 1916. But here's the story of some brothers who were trying to make the summit of Pikes Peak before there were roads or a race. In 1915, the brothers drove a motorcycle, yes, with a sidecar, all the way to the summit of Pikes Peak. At the time, no one thought that was possible. The road wasn't nearly what it is today. In fact, more of a trailish kind of thing. In fact, one of the brothers won the race nine times, from the 30s to the 60s. By that time, he was known as the old man of the mountain, nor just Uncle Louie. By now, some of you know who we're talking about, Uncle Louie Unser. Lewis and his brothers Joe and Jerry were born to Lewis and Marie Unser, who immigrated from Switzerland and settled in Colorado Springs. Lewis Jr., who did so well on Pike's Peak, had a great reputation as a machinist. His brother, Joe Unser, also competed to get up the hill, but was never able to beat his older brother, Lewis. Joe Unser would live long enough to see his brothers get a shot at going to the Indianapolis 500, but while testing a car between Colorado Springs and Denver, he lost control, crashed and was killed. Indianapolis would be set aside for now, but as you know, not forever. The other brother that was on the motorcycle that climbed Pike's Peak before the road was built was Jerry Unser Sr. Jerry Sr., the second son lived for some time in the castro valley of california and then came back to colorado springs in 1931 the clean mountain air of colorado must have been good for him and his wife too as the family grew with first twin boys jerry jr and louis and then followed by bobby in 1936 the family moved to albuquerque new mexico Not long after the boys' father, Jerry Sr., had established a repair shop and filling station along Route 66 west of Albuquerque, son Alfred, or Al, came along in 1939, and Jerry Sr. continued to build a reputation of being able to fix what others couldn't. As the Unser boys grew, they learned to drive a Model A Ford on the back roads around Albuquerque and began to drive in races. The seeds of the Unser Racing Dynasty were planted in the dry soil of New Mexico. But Jerry had taught his sons to stick with it and be their best at everything they tried. When they tried racing, it really, really worked well. Jerry's boys would race in Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, and in 1955 return the family to the Pikes Peak Hill Climb Race. The race has been won by some really famous drivers. Mario Andretti, Louis Unser Jr., Al Unser, a senior and junior, Bobby Unser. And Bobby's daughter, Jerry, who won it in 2003 in the electric division. And as I mentioned earlier, Robbie Unser. And the list goes on with other great names like John Buffum and Rod Millen. It's truly a major international event. But the effect that the Unsers would have on racing was just beginning. We'll have more in a moment. And now it's time for your Car Kicks Car Quiz. The Unsers dominated racing in most any category that they tried, whether it was Pikes Peak, Indy, Sprint Cars, High Rock, Go Karts, even electric cars. But only one won the Indy Car Triple Crown of 500 Milers that is, Indy, Pocono, and Ontario. Was it A, Big Al, B, Little Al, C, Bobby Unser, or D, Jerry Jr.? The answer is A. A for Al Unser Sr. or Big Al. In 1978, Al became the first and only driver to win the triple crown of 500 milers, Indianapolis, Pocono, and Ontario in a single year. In 1985, he won his third national championship after taking over the injured Rick Mears car and beating his son Al Jr. by one point. That's your Car Kicks car quiz. In automobile racing, there are so many excellent race drivers with the Unser name, it's hard to keep them straight in your head. So let me give an abbreviated recap. Jerry Unser Sr. and Mary Unser had four boys, Jerry Jr., Louie, Al, and Bobby. Jerry Jr. raced at Pikes Peak and finished fourth in 1955 and took a swing in 1958 at the Indianapolis 500. But in a multi-car crash, Jerry Jr.'s car went over the wall. He was wounded, but a few weeks later raced at Pikes Peak but rolled the car. The following year, in 59, he was at Indianapolis and was badly burned in a crash during a practice lap. He succumbed to his injuries a little more than two weeks later. Now Louis, the younger of the twins, he was a scrapper, a race driver since the early teens with an aggressive style. Louis, Jerry, and Bobby were known for winning short track races in New Mexico and the surrounding states. Louis would go to Pikes Peak in 1955, but he had to do it with his little brother Bobby's car, as his uncle Louis talked the car owner out of letting louis drive it because it was too powerful for such a young man so louis took bobby's car and placed third in the race louis would return to pike's peak in 1960 and 61 and win both years in the stock car class ms forced him to retire from racing but he could still build engines and he served as team crew chief for his little brother al at Indy, Car Kicks is about automotive history, and most of you know the names Al Unser, Bobby Unser, and Little Al Unser. But we wanted you to know the Unser's history reaches back much further and much more deeply than a casual observer would ever get to know. A worthwhile addition to any trip to the Southwest United States would be the Unser Racing Museum in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Find it online at UnserRacingMuseum.com. Join us next time as we continue to examine the incredible, amazing story of the Unser family, America's racing
1: dynasty. For Car Kicks, I'm Bob Lack. Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities at our website, MartinReport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, president of
2: BackTech Environmental. Trading on the OTC is BCCEF and on the CSE, the Canadian Stock Exchange, as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas Resulting from abandoned mining operations, BACTECH's core technology called BioLeaching employs naturally occurring bacteria harmless to both humans and the environment to oxidize the sulfide materials left behind after years of mining. I should note that I've joined the company as a consultant and I'm a shareholder of BACTECH Environmental. Ross, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. There were some new developments that relate specifically to BACTECH. Why don't you tell us all about it? As your listeners might remember, we're following the trail of mercury in predominantly
9: Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, and the use of mercury as an amalgamator in the gold processing industry for artisanal miners. We were fortunate to sit down with Dr. Marcelo Vega to raise the profile of this problem in South America and in developing countries in general. He's agreed to come on board as an advisor to us and help us identify locations in Ecuador where he's had a hand in building flotation plants for processing this difficult arsenopyrite type of ore that we like for bioleaching.
2: Now, to be clear, Dr. Vega is a esteemed professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and he is turning out people year after year who are uh, becoming involved in the sector.
9: Correct. His whole mandate is to convince these artisanal miners that the best way to get gold out of difficult rock is not by using mercury to amalgamate it, but to actually use what they call flotation, where you literally float the sulfides away from the rock. The sulfides have all the value. They also have all the arsenic. What's happened, of course, is that you've now created a very high-grade gold content, but also a very, very, very high arsenic content, and that product becomes... Tricky to sell is the best way to put it without paying a lot of penalties from the buyer. So, what he has done is convinced the artisanal miners that the use of flotation or separating the sulfide ores away from the host rock. Now, that's a great idea. The problem is, of course, that you have very high gold levels, but you also have very high arsenic levels. And this makes the product very, very difficult to sell onto a smelter or a refiner because of the penalty elements that are involved.
2: So none of this has stopped when we're talking about mercury poisoning and arsenic poisoning and bad mining practices. These are small folks just making a living. How are you going to change their way of thinking?
9: By paying them more. Right now they're getting... As little as 10 cents on the dollar for concentrates that have values of over $6,000 a ton. And it's predominantly the Chinese who buy this material and take it to China for processing over there, where maybe they don't pay as much attention to the world rules on the amount of arsenic that can be burned in a smelter.
2: And you're also going to make sure that the poisoning stops.
9: Yeah, as I've said many times in the past, one of the main benefits of bioleaching is the ability to produce a ferric arsenic, which is a US EPA approved material for landfill. Again, I always say not that we would do that, but historically, of all the 20 odd plants of bioleach plants that have been built in the world, Arsenopyrite is the one common element that they process.
2: Why is it such a challenge to bring industry-wide awareness to this problem? What is keeping you from raising all the money you need to raise to begin the remediation of these assays all over the world?
9: Well, there's the $64,000 question. You were at PDAP, you saw the responses of people with whom I spoke regarding our plans for Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, etc. Everybody says, wow, what a great idea. And I say, so I can sign you up? And they say, oh, no, no, I don't have any money, or it's not the right market, or, or come back to me after you've built the first one. And it's always the same. The first one's the most difficult one. Even though we've built three plants elsewhere in the world, they were for mining operations. Now we're looking at basically tailings in Bolivia, and of course this anti-mercury crusade in the gold industry in Ecuador and Peru. I wish I had the answer, Ellis. It's been extremely difficult to raise the day-to-day money, but the project money falls out of the trees. It's like fast in, fast out money. They'll lend you the money for the plant, but they want it back within two years. And they want a high interest rate, and they want an NSR, and they want warrants, et cetera, et cetera.
2: So you've had those opportunities. You just have elected to keep them out of your company for obvious reasons.
9: Well, you have to walk before you run. And there's no sense me talking to anybody about debt financing a plant when I have to raise the capital first to do all the necessary test work that has to be done to determine whether or not it is, in fact, a viable candidate or not.
2: We mentioned Peru in a previous broadcast. Don't you have a joint venture there with a company called Duran Resources in northern Peru?
9: I have a memorandum of understanding with Duran Ventures, who are in the process of building a a 100-ton-a-day sulfide plant near Trujillo. I actually think that it'll start to begin the commercialization process, which is sort of working out the kinks as early as two weeks from now, maybe mid-April. Once they are up and running, the goal, of course, is then to expand that 100-ton-a-day plant to 350 tons a day, with the extra capacity being used to produce our concentrates, we will build a bioleach plant at the site of Durand.
2: What is the benefit to BackTech for all this effort on your part?
9: A, mercury reduction, again, because they do it in Peru as well as in, in Ecuador. And B, making more money for ourselves. How are you making more money for yourselves? Basically, we're making money because we're going to be buying, again, under the same process as we use in Ecuador, paying the miners more money to deliver their product to us. For processing.
2: Doesn't that make you, in a sense, more or less, a gold producer?
9: Yeah, it does, actually. I mean, we'll be able to identify, I would say, in Ecuador with a 40-ton-a-day plant, probably close to 40,000 ounces a year of production. And I would think that's probably going to be a little bit larger in Peru.
2: So to reiterate, technically, you will be in many aspects a gold producer and and perhaps not too far away from this point. It's all speculation. We don't have that locked in gold yet. You do have a memorandum of understanding, but it hasn't taken place yet, but it's likely to.
9: I would hope so. I mean, or else I'm wasting my time coming to work every day. The reality is we're sort of de-risking mining. We don't have to run around and drill holes in the ground. Somebody else is going to be bringing it to our front door where we will then assay and pay them on the spot and then take... I guess the only risk that we take on is we control that gold in our hands for, say, 30 days, and we would be subject to the fluctuations in the price of gold. But it would have to take a miraculous collapse to hurt us. I mean, we make money at $500 gold based on our models.
2: So your production costs essentially for an ounce of gold will be probably $500 an ounce.
9: Well, I would say that if you break it down to the actual different Components. So our costs are broken down into components of $50 a ton for flotation, $200 for bio-leaching, so $250, and then another $50 for plus or minus, and so $300 a ton is our operating cost.
2: Could that happen this year or next year?
9: It really is a function of being able to raise the capital to identify the opportunities and deal with the test work side of it. We've identified through Dr. Vega an engineer in southern Ecuador, northern Peru, who has a long history in the area, he is going to be approaching the flotation plants that Marcelo Vega is responsible for building over the last 10 years and identify how much arsenopyrite actually is produced on a daily basis from those plants. And then we would
2: negotiate to deal with them on a one-to-one basis. Your share price right now and your share structure could be very conducive for those that may want to consider getting involved in your company right now.
9: In our stocks two to three cents Canadian, something like that. If you can buy a hundred thousand shares at two cents to three cents, you're gambling two to three thousand dollars because in a year's time it'll either be worth nothing or it'll be worth a hundred thousand dollars based on production or lack thereof.
2: Hypothetically hypothetically. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program, Ross. My pleasure, Ellis. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of BackTech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with the CSE as BAC and on the OTC as B-C-C-E-F. Find BackTech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. You can download the Ellismart Report in its entirety on iTunes.
1: You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.